the only thing worse than a root canal is looking for a job on the internet. Hello everybody, this is Anthony Moore with Career Daily. I am here to put the human back in human resources. Let me be your competitive advantage on the job market. It is dog eat dog out there. Our research companies, new industries, I'll dig around, I'll figure out who some of the hiring leaders are, and I'll post all this information on our exclusive Facebook networking group. You'll also hear amazing interviews from professionals that I'm interviewing all across the country. Some are inspiring. Some are very informative. Some duds. I'll leave the duds out. Stay tuned for today's episode. Welcome to Career Daily. I've got a really interesting guest for us today, particularly because background in engineering, an MBA, successful career in business, and now a consultant. I'd like to welcome in Dave Boss. Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to your guests uh, today. Well, at first, I just want to uh, bring this out. I think it's kind of interesting having you having a mechanical engineering degree from Northwestern. Then you went to Duke and got your MBA. So what was the plan when you went uh, into education? Because engineering and then getting an MBA, it's kind of interesting. What were you thinking? So those were done at uh, two different points in my career, um, college, mechanical engineering, right out of high school. My plan was to be an engineer, um, and the MBA was mid-career. Uh, I had been a- actually with my first job uh, out of college. I was hired into a marketing and sales training program, and back in those days, there were very defined career paths inside within companies. And so I followed the traditional route of taking a sales job and taking a marketing job. And then as I had promotions and more responsibility, moving back and forth between sales and marketing, with the plan being that eventually I'd be, you know, a leader in the commercial space, um, it, you know, in marketing and or sales, you know, two, you know, very different disciplines that some people, you know, confuse. Um the the but the plan changed oh i'm sorry uh when i was hired into that marketing and sales training program this was with uh, a manufacturing a technical company that really only hired engineers uh to be their salespeople, and so they figured it was easier to teach an engineer how to sell than it might be to teach a salesperson the technology involved in a technical product so the first half of my career, you know, I was I was happy and progressing, uh, getting experience and accomplishments on the commercial side. Towards the end of my stint at Westinghouse, um, I was finding myself as a salesperson more and more involved in helping the operations people uh, keep the promises that I had made to my customers. I saw people that were kind of falling down in terms of project management and operations. And so more and more, I ended up getting involved a little bit beyond my area of responsibility to make sure that our clients would be satisfied. And, and that's where I developed a, a real interest in the operations side. Um, so, you know, I thought about, you know, how do I get an equivalent job in operations and kind of make a career transition at that point? I think the problem um, that I identified was you know, I, I had a significant amount of responsibility and I was paid well uh, as a sales and marketing person. 
And, but I did not have the experience uh, that would give me that same credibility on the operations side. And, and so I decided that the best way to do that was to go back and get an MBA mid-career. Um, at about the same time, um, a, a competitor, GE, uh, recruited me uh, into that opera. I'm sorry, into that uh, sales and marketing side. Uh, but their signing bonus to me, they agreed to pay for my MBA. Um, and so I was doing work for them that I already knew how to do and succeeding at it. And they were giving me the, uh, the financial resources and the time uh, to get my MBA while I was working for them. And so uh, shortly after graduating with the MBA, uh, I was fortunate to find my first uh, operations role uh, within GE. And I continued to work for that company for nine years. Yeah, I just think it's interesting when people combine multiple skill sets, it just kind of gives you a much different viewpoint of business. And I have to say, I totally agree with, with the theory of hiring someone more technical and then teaching them to be uh, in sales and marketing rather than taking someone who doesn't have the technical background or the training from either high school and or college. So I think that was a an interesting kind of wise wise move. And now after you did get your, uh, your black belt in operations at GE, you found yourself in the middle of a job change. Tell us about that. So, um, one of my earlier jobs during the nine years at GE was uh, a six Sigma master black belt, uh, a, a person dedicated full time to process improvement. And, uh, this discipline of Six Sigma has a belt system somewhat similar to, you know, Oriental martial arts like uh, karate or taekwondo. And the more you advance in your knowledge and experience, uh, the higher the belt system. A master black belt it was uh, considered that top level. And also, in addition to the uh, process improvement um teaching and project leadership. I also had people working for me. Um, and so at the end of uh, two years uh, in that role, I was granted this certification. Um, I then went uh, went on within GE and, and took a role as a plant manager. So as a master black belt, I had been supporting these facilities all around the world, um, essentially showing people how to make more money, uh, improve all types of metrics. And so then they challenged me, okay, you've told other people how to do this. Let's show that you know how to do it yourself and can you be successful? And so I, I accepted that role, my first profit and loss responsibility uh, as a plant manager and, and continued in that role for four years. Um, I intentionally left GE in 2007 for a number of different reasons, but it all boiled down to um, I thought I could progress my career faster um, um, outside of GE than, than within GE at that time. <clears throat> um, my timing really sucked because uh, a few months later, the recession started in 2008, which... Yeah, that was a really rough time to be in the job market, 2008, 2009. That's right. And in one form or another, that um, that, that lasted uh, to somewhere around 2012. 
Um, with some difficulty in finding that next job, I, I kind of retooled my skill set once again, drawing on both the Six Sigma experience and the uh, and the MBA, and decided uh, to be a consultant for the first time. And um, and about that same time, um, I was partaking in you know, so I was doing consulting, but I really wasn't all in dedicated to it. And, and ultimately, I, you know, I really wanted to go back to a corporate role. So I participated in a lot of the um, available resources. Uh, I was able to negotiate when I left GE um, a package that included um, outsourcing counseling from a, from a major company, uh, an outplacement firm. I also participated in the um, resources available from different job search ministries such as C3G and RUMC here in the Atlanta area and um, read a lot, uh, had a lot of interviews and, you know, over that period learned what seemed to work and what seemed not to work so well in, in job search. And so once I was either, um, you know, gainfully employed back in a corporate role or doing consulting intentionally, you know, I decided that uh, I had learned quite a bit and, uh, you know, I volunteered to help at some of those places that that I had um, had received help from, you know, with this, you know, pay it forward type of uh, mentality. And really it was paying it backwards because I had gotten those, those favors and help uh, in advance. Um, and so, you know, and additionally, uh, people started knowing that I had a passion for helping job seekers. And so people would keep sending people my way. And as I worked with them, continue to see what worked and what didn't work. And, uh, you know, so for about the last dozen years or so, you know, whenever I have spare time, um, I, I try my best to help job seekers. Well, and that's really how we connected because... When I was laid off from Cox Enterprises, I went to those same groups, C3G, RMUMC, some of the best networking groups and kind of mission-based groups really in well, in Atlanta and RUMC really in, in the country. And so I think you and I met really kind of through that, and it's very true. When you're in a job search, one of the best things you can do is really try to help someone else, and that's part of the process at C3G. And through your own experiences of being thrown in the fire of having to find a job yourself and then having to help others, you kind of came up with a, an idea. It's something that uh, you and I have, have talked about off air and I, I agree with your ideas hundred percent and I really want to dig into them. And I think we have a lot to offer job seekers in my audience, people who are potentially in the job market or maybe they have a job, but they, they want to find a new job and you've got this kind of three pronged, uh, job search plan, and I'd love you to kind of unpack it. Uh, just give us a quick overview of, of what it is, and then maybe we can kind of go through the bits and pieces of it to really give people these tools that they can use, you know, when they do find themselves needing a job. Well, let me step back just a little bit and tell you what it's not um, and what, uh, what I observe most job seekers go through. Um, many people... Uh, especially today with COVID, are in a position of having to look for a job for the first time. And my observation is that a lot of people that find themselves in that position are like alcoholics. Um, they go through these, you know, phases of denial, 
um, anger, revenge, you know, et cetera, you know, all of which don't really help them in their ultimate uh, goal of getting back into the workforce. Um, other people say that they're consultants when really they're not doing the things necessary to become a consultant, and they're just using that as a resume filler. Uh, and what I find is nobody is really trained uh, on how to find a job. And so what people revert to is scouring the Internet every day, LinkedIn, Indeed, Career Builder, and hoping to find uh, the right job. And unfortunately, actually, they find many, many of these. But uh, really what happens is a great majority, despite the millions of jobs you can find on the Internet, a great majority of them aren't, aren't real. They're not available. So it's either um, a company has neglected to take down an expired listing um, or a recruiter has. Um, there are, believe it or not, in this world, unscrupulous recruiters that, um, that post jobs just to attract resumes. They can have a big resume bank and, and offer uh, a perceived value to potential employers. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons that many of those jobs are not real. And then, you know, to go along with that, for the ones that are real, um, even pre-COVID, you, you would, for, for a decent job, you'd see 500 or more applications, and today it's even worse. So even if you were like God's gift to that job, the chance that you would actually make it to an interview were very slim. Uh, it could be that the resume, the resume screener uh, has a thousand uh, resumes to go through, yet the boss said, you know, find me 10. And they go through the first 50 and find 10 acceptable ones, and they never actually look through the rest of the pile. And that actually happened to me once. Um, I had uh, uh, applied for a job as a vice president in an Atlanta area company. And after applying, I found a um, one of my friends was uh, connected with the CEO of that company, who would be my direct uh, supervisor. And during the interview, uh, that person said, you know, I'm really glad that so-and-so introduced us because I'm here to tell you, you would not have made it because my, you know, my HR person only went through the first hundred uh, resumes, found me appropriate candidates, and uh, didn't even look at the rest of the pile. You know, another trap is the so-called ATS, Applicant Tracking System. And if you haven't structured your resume so that it can be parsed and read by this machine and that the machine then can find the keywords that um, the person is looking for, you're also not going to make it. And then believe it or not, you know, job descriptions are written very poorly unless it's done by a professional. And so what they say they want in this in, in, in this posting versus what the uh, what they really need and want uh, may be two different things. So applying online is, is a really bad way of finding a job. And so I, I term that click and pray. So you click on the application. You know, these days, it's really easy to do with LinkedIn's easy apply button. Uh, and then you pray that something happens. Uh, some job seekers uh, take it another step and they say, okay, well, now that I've applied, how do I get in the door to get in front of that hiring manager? Well, by that point, it's too late because, again, there's a thousand competitors and 200 of them are smart enough to do what you're doing. 
So the HR department typically is protecting the hiring manager. They're they're doing everything they can to prevent you from from that inroad. So let me yeah, that's you. right. And you know, um, there it, it, it's it's kind of a bleak picture. You know, thinking about uh, online job searching, and if you happen to be uh, a male or a white male, many companies put a priority on hiring persons of color and minorities. I've talked about this uh, on previous episodes quite a bit, and I've seen it firsthand. I've been instructed on how to perform searches like that for some large companies. So uh, you've got that additional hurdle, you know, if, if you don't fall into the into one of those categories. So yeah, it's kind of a bleak picture. So, but you, um, but you think you've kind of figured something out that might work, that might give a job seeker maybe a, a different approach. Yeah. And um, it's probably a conglomeration of things I've learned in different places and, and things I've, I've tested. Um, but yeah, there are three pieces to avoid this click and pray. So number one, um, I've read statistics that say 95% of recruiters uh, use LinkedIn as one of their primary sources of finding candidates. So whether that's true or not, it's uh, very little effort to make your LinkedIn profile shine. Um, in other words, um, you know, complete all the sections uh, available to you, you know, including the, the banner uh, display right behind the photo at the top. A lot of people don't even bother to fill that in, and that's wasted advertising space. Um, and again, you look at statistics pu uh, published by LinkedIn, uh, for example, um, you know, the idea of having a, a, a profile that shines is that you get found uh, when recruiters are looking for you. And I forget the number, but I think it's something like someone with a, with a complete profile which LinkedIn will will report back to you. Is, I think it's called a champion. Uh, there, there's there's some term for it on LinkedIn. But it's like a little badge they give you when you, you know, fill all the sections out and, and do it. That's well. right. They claim that uh, your chance of being found in a search is something like four to six times greater than if your profile is not complete. Oh, that's true. No, it, it that's it's a hundred percent true because when I perform a search and I am in LinkedIn, the profiles that come up first for me are the completed profiles, those that have headshots and the profiles are completed. And as I go, you know, deeper into my search, you know, page after page, the data gets thinner and thinner and eventually I get down to people with no photos. And I open up their profiles and there's very little data there. So the system is designed to give preference in a way to those better completed profiles. So you're you're 100 percent right. Yeah, that and that's another point. Uh, you know, uh, most people wouldn't think about putting a photo on a resume these days, and it's probably not appropriate other than certain types of jobs. But it's essential on LinkedIn. Uh, but there's other things to consider in each and every section. Probably the biggest thing people miss just like they miss on their um, resumes, is they focus on their job activities, what their responsibilities were, rather than what they accomplished. So, for example, everybody knows what an accountant does to, you know, to the extent uh, that, that they need to know. But what did you do differently uh, when you had that job in accounting 
uh, that you could quantify with numbers. Uh, you were able to do 20 financial closures at the end of the month uh, when the target was only 15. Uh, you were able to provide some type of insight to the general manager of the, your division that enabled a cost reduction of 6%. Um, you know, in all types of jobs, you know, there are numbers. And, and a lot of people object and when they when I suggest something like this to them and well, how the, how the heck am I going to remember, you know, what those numbers were? Well, you know approximately what they were, um, you know, as long as you're, you're honest and you, you can approximate what those were. You, so you wouldn't say it was 83.6% if you actually don't have a record of that. But you certainly know it was more than 75%. Uh, so... You know, that's a, a good alternative to not having the numbers. Like most of us don't keep a daily diary with all of our financial accomplishments, but it might not be a bad idea to do so. It's a common problem. I, I seem to coach people on this all the time. I don't know what the underlying problem is. I think it's maybe different for all people. Maybe it's a personality type. I could think that maybe, you know, maybe you're listening to this and, you just think, you know, I work in a team, so it's hard for me to break out what I've done because I'm I'm part of a team. You know, if you're in sales, it's a little bit easier because you are uh, solo many times, oftentimes, so you can kind of break your numbers out. But uh, I, I don't know. Why, why do you think people struggle with this? Is it maybe uh, humility? They don't want to, you know, uh, present themselves as something that they're not? I, I'm not sure that that's it. Um, I think it's not so much uh, shyness as lack of awareness that that's what people are looking for. Um, and, you know, to go along with that, uh, especially with people in internships or assistance, um, they may not be able to take credit for individual accomplishments. But certainly, as a good alternate, they could talk about the accomplishments of their team. So as an assistant to the vice president, I participated on a team that increased sales by 6% or reduced uh, the lead time on a product by four days. Um, so something, give the recruiter some nugget of an accomplishment that can be quantified uh, because people look at that and say, well, if they were able to have those kind of accomplishments for the last employer, imagine what they can do for me. Um, so, Hand in hand with having this really nice LinkedIn profile, uh, that's not quite enough. Um, you also want to get found. And another way to get found is by being active on LinkedIn every day. Uh, being active means that you would share articles that are interesting. You might write a post. Um, uh, with, it could be a paragraph. It could be an article. You might like and comment on other people's posts. And each of these things adds up. And I don't know quite how the LinkedIn matrix works, but people that do know tell me that uh, if you're consistent and participate on LinkedIn, the search matrix knows that. And, you know, in addition to people with complete LinkedIn profiles, your results also rise in those search results if you're more active. Uh, not quite enough to just like people's comments, you know, just click that little, uh, you know, clap symbol. But you have to put at least, you know, one or two lines of comments in there, and, and it helps the algorithm find you better. 
Yeah, I mean, do you have any tips for people who are thinking that they would like to offer some content? We've heard a lot about content marketing, and that's really, I think, what you're suggesting is that they offer content. Um, any advice on maybe how they could go about, you know, creating content or curating something for, you know, their their LinkedIn market? So curating is the key. Um, I mean, there are people that are just naturally gifted writers. Um, but in all honesty, in my experience, very few people click and open the article. Very few people uh, click and open the video. Um, and, and so a short comment in a post rather than writing an entire blog piece or an article kind of does the trick. Um, and curating uh, articles is also a great way. Uh, I, I do something similar in business development for my consulting practice. Every day on LinkedIn, I post a curated article that I found online, and I augment that with a few lines of comments as to why I think it would be interesting to, to the audience that I'm trying to reach. Um, again, I'm, I'm almost positive that very few people go through and click and open the link and read the article. But the point is, they see me being active on LinkedIn every day. And when I have um, initial calls with prospects, a lot of them mention to me, Dave, I know you're a consultant and I see you know, you're posting helpful information every day. That's all I want. Um, would it be great if they read the article? Absolutely. But it's not necessary for what I'm trying to do. And I think that's equally applicable to a job seeker. And, and, and hence, I prefer the curating approach rather than writing an article if you figure that most people aren't going to read it anyway. You, you get credit for having done so. Yeah, it's a, that's a good point. It, it's easier, too. I mean, you can just go to Wall Street Journal or anywhere that you're trying to work in or like in your space, if you've got a particular industry, just pull, you know, just pull some content from that. Um, I, I have a question, though, because... Some because you you touched on it, but you said that your market or the people that you're trying to sell to, you know, they they're they're seeing your post. Now there's a a, a line of thinking out there that says connect with everybody on LinkedIn, and there's another line of thinking that says only connect with people that you really know. Do you have an opinion on that? Because I honestly I I accept a lot of invites, but like my wife. If she doesn't know who you are, she's not going to accept the, the, the LinkedIn invite. So early on, I mean, I've been on LinkedIn uh, since I left GE in about 2007. I was very particular, and I really prided myself that I, I knew 95% of the people that I was connected with. Uh, and, and why was that important? Because if you, Tony, called me and said, Dave, I see you're connected to Bill. Can you get me an introduction? I absolutely could because I knew these people and, and tried to be helpful to them. Today, that's impossible with the number of connections I have. Um, I do I do accept connections from anybody that doesn't look like they're a scammer. Um, and it's easy to um, uh, correct if, if you made a mistake. You know, so if they turn out that they're a person you don't want in your network, just either delete the connection or even you can block them. So I don't really see yep. or just ignore it or, or yeah. just ignore it. And, and 
I mean, every day I get connection requests from people trying to sell me something in a cold call, and I, I usually won't um, accept those. But these, so so I definitely believe that uh, connecting with more is better. But in my own approach, I don't just blindly send out invitations. Um, I have a particular demographic that I'm trying to reach, um, people that would most benefit from my consulting services. So every week I reach out to intentionally 50 to 100 new people in that demographic. And the demographic, you know, is based on company size, industry, position that the person holds, uh, geography, et cetera. And, and some number of those uh, connect with me. And those are my target demographic. And those are the people I'm trying to reach. And I believe a job seeker should be doing the same thing. Does it hurt to exactly. reach out to everybody? Of course not. But this brings us to another pillar of the, that three-pronged approach that, that you asked me about. So <clears throat> rather than applying for these jobs online, and don't get me wrong, I mean, it can't hurt to, to apply for a job online, except that it's wasting your time. If it takes you five to 10 minutes and it's a job that you absolutely think you would love, um, if it's, you know, look and see if it's on the company website, which makes means that it's probably more realistic, but go ahead and apply, you know, if you've got nothing better to do. But if you follow my advice, you're not going to have much time because you're going to have a structured discipline towards finding a job. And you're not going to have that false expectation that if you apply to the job and you're one of a thousand competitors, you're going to get it. So what should you do as an alternate? What I'd like you to do uh, as a job seeker is identify 10 companies where you want to work that could use somebody like you. Now, I didn't say 10 companies that have job openings for you because then it's too late. Everybody else is trying to get those same openings. Um, target companies that may be hiring in other disciplines because it shows that they're growing or will be growing, and they'll eventually be adding somebody like you, uh, but that are not necessarily or, or, or probably are not uh, advertising uh, jobs for you. Um, so, you know, you, you, you pick these initial 10 companies. Going in with the expectation that only about 30% of those, of, of the people that you, you target are going to be interested in talking to you. So once you've identified these companies, either through the internet, through uh, LinkedIn, through, through whatever means necessary, use LinkedIn to figure out who are the people that would be likely bosses to you in that company. And, and your mission, and there's a lot more detail behind this, but your mission then is to develop relationships with those people when they're not looking to hire anybody. Because at that point, HR is not protecting them, you know, their guards down, and um, they're more willing to talk to you. So what should, what should you ask for um, when, when you approach them? Well, you should not ask them, you know, do you have a job, or I'm looking for a job, or do you know of a job? Why not? Well, the reason is, is because if they don't have a job or know of a job, they're going to feel bad, and they're going to have a reason to tell you, no, I don't. I don't really want to talk to you. However, if you ask them for advice, um, many people are amenable to helping others. 
And, and so what kind of advice should you ask for? Well, it's easier if you're a younger person, maybe just getting out of college or uh, transitioning from, from one early job to another. You know, you might find uh, your profile, Tony, for example, and the person wants to be a recruiter. Hey, Tony, I found your profile on LinkedIn and um, you've had an amazing career. Uh, um, I would like to have a 20-minute phone call with you where... Um, as I consider my next roles, you could tell me about some of the keys to success uh, that you've enjoyed in your career. Or you went to the same university, so you could ask them something about that. Or you have a common interest in a nonprofit organization that shows up on their profile. Anything to get them to have a conversation with you. So again, think about maybe 25 or 30% of people will say yes. So if you know that going in, you won't get discouraged when you don't hear back from people. Uh, and, and a thing that goes right along with that is uh, this is a sales process, uh, much like you're selling a product, but in this case, the product or the service is you. What's a big mistake that many salespeople make? It's they make a request for a call or an appointment, and they hear nothing back. And they assume that the person's not interested or too busy. Um, and they don't follow up. Yet statistics show that um, most sales uh, in the United States occur only after six to eight contact attempts. And most salespeople give up after one or two. And I maintain it's the same thing with, you know, for, um, for job seekers. I mean, you're trying to reach the same people. The principal must must hold true. Um, well, do you recommend that people then sign up for a more robust LinkedIn account? Because your basic, I guess, free account, you only get four or five in-mails and then that's it. So to reach out and, and connect with these people, it could be difficult. What do you recommend? Well, I believe that with the, the free account, you get none. Um, with the first the, the, the job search version, which is like 20 or 30 bucks a month, I think you get five and then it goes up from there. But emails are not necessary. I mean, they're a nice convenience if you're paying for the service, which for most job seekers, especially if money is tight, I'm not sure that you ought to fork over the money to do that because there are creative ways to, to, to get your message in front of people. And the two alternatives to email that make the most sense are one is a LinkedIn connection request. Um, so, you know, five, 10 years ago, that would be seen as a very aggressive tactic, inviting somebody that you don't know to be your connection. But if you write them a polite message uh, in that LinkedIn invitation request, many people will accept it. And the message could be as simple as, hey, I'm looking to expand my network of people in the accounting field in the Atlanta area. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you join my network. Most people will say yes to that. And then maybe a week or two later, now, since they're a first-level connection, you can send them a direct message in LinkedIn that costs you nothing um, and go ahead and make that request for a phone call. I just wouldn't do that in that initial contact. You know, why would somebody who doesn't know you, you know, willingly agree to a phone call? But if you make it into a two-step process. Um, I, I think many people will. In my own case. Yeah. Marketing studies really back that up. 
Yeah, yeah. The marketing studies are 100% on board with you with that theory. Uh, if someone comes to your front door and they knock on it, they they can't ask to come into your kitchen. That, 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 that's right. And and the, the first step is just open the door. Right. And and along with that, if we're going back to the uh, uh, analogy with my own business development, I don't even ask for a phone call for a first phone call till I've been connected with the person for two months and they've seen my posts every day and I've sent them uh, LinkedIn messages because they're connected with me uh, about every two weeks, not asking them for anything, just trying to be helpful. Um, so you definitely slow play it. I, I do, but because this is a machine, a pipeline for me, um, and I don't need to close a project you know, the day after I connect with you, I'm, I'm trying to feed a pipeline for future work because I have current work. It's a little bit different for a job seeker, but I would still think that you're right, you know, about that marketing study, at least delay it a week. I mean, you could immediately ask them, but if you want to increase your chances and not be seen as a, as a stalker, I guess, you know, give it a week. Uh, and, and then um, I, I think there's, there's a higher probability. Um, yeah, and that's a great point. Now, you you said there was another way to get around having to send in-mails. One was using the connection feature, which works like a charm. I've done that quite a bit. The, the challenge, like you kind of pointed to, though, is you only have so many characters. You have to make it a kind of a short and sweet little message, and I think that's a great uh, approach. Just, you know, we're in the same industry. I'd love to connect with you, and I'm trying to expand my network in this area. Once they then connect, you can just talk all you want to them. Through direct message, through LinkedIn. What would you say? The, what, what would you say the other way is if 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 that doesn't work? Because some people don't go to LinkedIn, right? You know, they they're they're on it. They've got a profile set up, but they just don't go check it, right? Well, okay. So there's there's a couple there's there's a couple things that are related to each other. So number one is find their email address. Um, you know, you don't you don't have access to their email address if you're not connected to them on LinkedIn. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're a clever, smart person, and you can figure out how to get the email address. I'll just give you three really quick ways. So if it's a public company, you can go to the uh, financial reports section or the new products announcement section or the news section. And a lot of times there'll be like a press release or a financial report, and it'll say, for more information, contact you know, Tony.more at abc.com. Well, you're not trying to reach Tony, but now you know in 99% of the cases, Joe Smith has that same format for their email address. Uh, sometimes, exactly. sometimes that doesn't work because it's a media outlet that's providing a report. Sometimes it'll be a generic address like info at abc.com, but you'd be surprised how often you can find the name of the person. Another way to find an email address is you can go to Google and <clears throat> I, I, offline I can tell you, you know, the search strings that you could put into Google. But essentially what you're doing is you're searching for uh, star at abc.com. And what's going to come back to you are going to be thousands of hits. A lot of them are going to be info at abc.com, sales at abc.com, customer service at abc.com. But probably in about, my experience, 30, 40% of cases, it's going to come back and say j.smith at abc.com. 
And again, most companies have the same format for all their employees. And so now you have their email address. Um, and then the corollary to that is if they do accept your LinkedIn message um, and you wanted to just connect with them through email following that uh, because you believe they don't really check uh, LinkedIn very often, well, now you've got their email address and you could take it uh, to email. As a matter of fact. Exactly. And then communicate with them in their personal uh, Gmail account or wherever. That's right. Or, or, or their business account. Um, and, and in fact, in my uh, approach, um, after I've asked somebody after about three months twice through LinkedIn for a call and they don't respond, I'll move it off into email. And then I get some of those people uh, to now respond. And so the, the attitude the job seekers, I think, would, would, would do them well would be uh, lack of response doesn't mean you're not interested. What, what means they're not interested is when they say, stop bothering me. So or, or unsubscribe, or don't email me again. But but what's the downside of that? You know, let's say you were interested in that company again a year from now. That person is never going to remember this. I think if you're respectful, you're respectful of their wishes, don't make the follow-ups too often, you know, about every seven to 10 days, um, you'll be surprised that after your third and fourth follow-up, a person will come back to you and say, wow, I am really sorry. I didn't notice your previous messages or, yeah, I've seen them, but I've been so busy. I really would like to see if I can help you because deep down, most people really are good and they want to help people. Um, it's just, they're busy. They've got other priorities. And even though your job search is the most important thing in the world to you, believe it or not, they have other priorities. Well, maybe you could unpack that strategy a little bit. So you you were able to so you've got a target company you find who you think is the hiring leader we'll just say we'll just keep using the accountant it's simple it, they find the accounting manager or they find the controller and they start messaging let's say the controller so kind of walk us through how you take it from the acorn phase of you've just found them they've accepted to you've worked this into an opportunity where you might actually be considered for a job. How do you, what's that cycle? What, you know, what does that look like? Okay. So the philosophy going into that's got to be, you know, you meet, um, a, a girl you want to date, or if you're a, a girl, you know, a, a, a partner that you'd like to date, regardless of what sex each one is same sex, different sexes, whatever. Yeah. 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 Whichever sex it is, uh, um, but you decide uh, you'd like to have a first date. And so you ask them and they accept, uh, analogous to them accepting the phone call. You know, you get to the, you bring, bring, bring them to the restaurant and, you know, over dessert, you do not propose marriage, right? You're, you're, you're feeling each other out. You're seeing if you're going to be compatible. Um, most of the time it may not work out. So the same attitude in this call, you're, again, you're not asking for a job. You're asking for advice. So make it pleasant, make it a pleasant experience for the other person. Um, again, this is not going to result in a job tomorrow, but neither is clicking on um, a, a job application and hoping that it will. So you, you follow uh, the lead that you asked for in your request for the call. Uh, again, going back to the accountant, um, I'm looking to move between uh, from cost accounting to management accounting. And I see that that's a specialty of yours. 
I'd like to hear about some of the differences that you've observed. Um, if you're at a more advanced level in your career, like an executive, you know stuff and you may know more stuff than the person that you're calling. So maybe you can start positioning yourself as a trusted advisor. Uh, for example, today with the coronavirus, many people shy away from business development and job searching because companies seem to be doing so poorly. But think about it from the aspect of the person you're talking to. They're under tremendous pressure. Maybe orders are down or orders are up because they're essential business and they can't figure out how to get stuff out the door. If you're an experienced leader or executive or even an experienced individual contributor, you've likely lived through these recessions before. And you may, you know, you're not going to say, hey, you need me because blah, blah, blah. You're going to say, Hey, can I tell you about a situation in 2008 when the economy had just tanked and what my company faced and what we did about it? So you're now providing value to them and they look forward to speaking with you. Do you think it would be appropriate? I mean, like you say, kind of at the date, you know, you're kind of, you're trying to figure out, is there a, a chemistry there, you know, between the two, the two people? Do you think there would ever be a time when you would even offer, you know, uh, consulting services or, you know, if, if you're an accountant and you're talking to a controller and the controller is talking about, you know, they, they've had to lay off or they had to furlough or something. And you realize, you know, you have some skills that you could provide them. Would you even think about doing something pro bono or something to, I don't know, a, a good faith gesture or is that, is that a little too aggressive? I, I don't think it's aggressive, but I think it's a little desperate, but there is one exception um, that I would support. It's either a young person with no applicable experience, but has got the right credentials, or it's somebody trying to make a major transition in their in their career. Um, so, you know, recently um, I was coaching a uh, a person with a PhD who had been a professor and wanted to get into policy administration. So I suggested uh, to her that she consider doing something pro bono, either for um, a, an educational institution or um, a, a, a nonprofit organization. And believe it or not, and this was just uh, a month or two ago, you know, pre, I mean, you know, in the midst of COVID, in her first call, um, she was offered a part-time uh, assignment paid and she was looking for pro bono, but they agreed a part-time assignment paid in an area where she had a passion, but no real experience. So I think there is a circumstance where you might do that. Um, but, you know, if you're a professional and you're looking for staying in the field that you're in, you know, people perceive that your value is what they pay for it. And so I don't think they would respect you and respect your capabilities as much. And it would look a little bit desperate uh, other than in those few situations I mentioned, but all, e e even if you are unemployed, even if you're unemployed, um, you, you, okay, that's you, good you have a value, right? Your, your, your work is worth something. You're providing a benefit to the company. Now, maybe you suck up your ego a little bit and you're the type of person who valued your self-worth based on your salary before, uh, maybe you need to humble yourself a little bit and, and realize that, uh, maybe you got those raises because of the specific value you provided to that specific employer after many years and your skills are not as applicable in the outside world. 
uh, maybe you have to readjust your expectations as to what a reasonable salary might be in the competitive marketplace. So kind of keep us th- keep walking us through this this process. So you you you've, you're talking to them now, you're getting some advice. Um, what's how does that unfold? Right, and and by the way, before I forget, um, that woman that I mentioned who got that part time assignment. That is the PhD. The PhD. That, that's that's not the unique example I have for you. Uh, just before COVID, um, I was coaching a young master's graduate uh, who wanted a mechanical engineering job uh, up in Canada, um, and uh, he had arranged for a call with a hire, hiring manager inside of uh, a major auto manufacturer, and you you know the the auto manufacturer. I mean, you know of them. Uh, and uh, a couple hours before the call, uh, my, my, my friend, the, the person I was coaching, received an email from uh, the, the, the hiring manager. And there wasn't a job. He wasn't really a hiring manager at that point. He was just a potential employer. And he said, look, um, I'm really sorry. I just, I'm just too busy to talk with you. However, I did look over your LinkedIn profile, and we've been thinking about uh, a position of X, Y, Z. Um, it seems to me that you would be really good at that if you are like in person what you are on paper. Um, would you be interested in interviewing? So, of course, the guy thought for about three seconds and yes. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and th- you know, three interviews later, he got the job. Now, now Tony, this is a a fortune, I don't know, certainly 500, if not 250 company, where you would think that every job has to be posted with a, you know, fair, broad competition. Uh, it, it wasn't, um, you know, there, there are many, many companies that don't require posting jobs, but even if they did post a job, wouldn't you want the hiring manager to be telling HR, look, there's a thousand resumes. I want you to make sure that Sally is one of the ones that's presented to me for interview. Um, so, so back to your question as to what, what happens. So the conversation goes, goes well. Um, and it's time to close out. You certainly want to be very respectful of the time that you ask them to spend with you. So, you know, five minutes before the close, you know, there's a couple things that you want to take away from the call. Number one, you want to ask permission to circle back with them. Hey, Tony, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot, but you've given me some things to research and think about. Would it be okay if in about two weeks uh, we scheduled another call? What are they going to say? I mean, now they've invested some time in you. They see that you appreciate their advice. Of course, they're going to say yes, 99% of the time. Uh, The other thing you may want to ask is, this has been very helpful Um, Can you think of two or three other people uh, of your colleagues, uh, maybe in different companies, different industries, that you'd feel comfortable uh, introducing me to? I promise promise you I will not ask them for a job either. I just want to get their advice and broaden my network. Um, And then, you know, in two weeks, you you have a follow-up call and, again, do what you said, cover what you wanted to say. And then after that, it becomes a little awkward to keep having these calls every two weeks, but you can certainly reach out to them each two weeks by LinkedIn or through email. Hey, I saw this article that 
directly touches on something we talked about. Or I see your company announce that they're closing a facility in Denver. Um, blah, 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 blah. But just something to keep you top of mind. And so originally I said, Tony, you know, you need to find 10 companies like this. Um, and of course, a company has more than one employee. So if you're not successful reaching one manager, you would uh, pivot to look at a different one. Um, but eventually you're going to give up on that company and attack the next 10 companies. So if you do this for a month, six weeks, and you're persistent at it, you can now have 30 people, let's say, that are on your side that are, that they have, uh, they have you at top of mind so that when somebody retires, quits, gets fired, gets pregnant, goes on sabbatical, or the company starts to grow and needs to add another person like you, you're the first person they think about. And I know when I was in a hiring position in, in several companies, I did not have to post jobs. I would always pride myself on having uh, a list of three to five people for the key positions that reported to me um, that I could feel free to call upon to find out what their current job situation was, were they happy, uh, and would they consider you know, an interview with me. There were some controllers I used to work with, and occasionally they would hire someone and I didn't know about it. And that actually, not occasionally, I mean, that, that, that was an ongoing basis. They would hire people. And when they would tell me about the story of how they hired someone, they typically had someone in mind. And this is what you're talking about. Yeah, you just want to be that person. <laughs> you just you just need to be in that little group of two or three people that they think about. And, you know, when these jobs are put, listen, and when these jobs are posted, uh, your point is uh, very, uh, very accurate that they will tell the hiring manager, you need to go into the applicant tracking system and look for Tony Moore because he's someone, you know, I've told him about the posting. He's going to apply to the job, make sure he's in my, you know, my pool. And that's why so many people who think they're qualified for a job and they apply don't get anywhere because there's already two or three people that are already being considered. Right. And then, you know, going back to our initial part of our conversation, the job posting may not be exactly what they're looking for, or it was on day one, but after they started meeting candidates and seeing what's available in the marketplace, their criteria changed. So you're no longer that perfect match. And please, please, your listeners should not be deluded by those tools on LinkedIn that say you match on nine of 10 areas, right? Or you're in the top 20%. Um, it, it might be a good indication that your resume doesn't suck um, uh, and that you've got some of the right keywords in there, but don't get overly confident or discouraged uh, uh, by those automated tools. Pay attention, even, you know, even if it's faulty, uh, all you really have to go on is what it says in the job posting. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go into great or any detail on, on the resume, which is the third piece of this uh, approach. But let me just say this about the resume, uh, because there's there's millions of people that can give you advice on resumes, and there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, and, and they're out there. Just go to LinkedIn. <laughs> that, that, that's right. But but there's a lot of free resources as well. But um, but the point is, people 
agonize over the resumes. And every time somebody else gives them uh, another piece of advice, they go back and revise it and revise it. And they spend hours and hours and days and days retooling their resume, thinking their resume is a key to getting a job. The resume is only a box checker. Um, if you need to develop a relationship with somebody um, and have them ask for your resume because they're required to get it, um, there's very few situations where you send in your resume and it's it's perceived to be ideal for the situation and, and you're called. It's great when it happens and it can't hurt to have a really good resume, but find somebody you trust, hopefully that you don't have to pay for. Uh, maybe if you're an executive and you're getting severance and you're not worried about paying next month's mortgage, you know, hire a professional to help you, but find somebody you trust. If you don't trust yourself, get it on paper, get it into the electronic format and be done with it. And then when it's ready, to, you're ready to uh, apply to a job, make it such that you can change a few things here and there in the first part of the resume, maybe to make the the, the title match the job and, and maybe slant your experiences heavily or less heavily in one way or another, but don't, I, I wouldn't even bother going into each individual job because those are more like facts. Here were your responsibilities. Here was your job title. Here's what you accomplished. It doesn't really matter what the individual job is, but in your, in your advertising section up at the top where it's about you and, and this, the skills that you have, uh, a lot of people put those in, in bullet type forms. That's where you can make these minor changes. So it should take you no more than five minutes to adjust your resume for that next particular opportunity. Well, you the strategy you have laid out is going to take time. And that's the thing that in a discipline, you have to be disciplined to do this because it's I won't say it's necessarily easy. I mean, you have to do research. You have to like getting in and digging around and trying to pull this information out. But once you get it started and you keep that process rolling, if your numbers are accurate, you know, roughly 30%, you're going to you're going to need several target companies in your in your pipeline, your funnel to, you know, kind of complete this process. How many target companies do you think a person can realistically kind of juggle it at once. Well, that's why, that's what I said. You should always have 10 on your radar. Um, and if you do this, you know, unfortunately a job, a lot of job seekers, you know, they wake up in the morning, they're still wearing their pajamas and bunny slippers and, and plop down at the, at the computer and say, Oh gosh, another day of this. What am I going to do to find a job? If you put a, a system like this in place, you never have that worry. You're either reaching out to people for the first time, you're inviting people to be your LinkedIn connection, you are preparing for a phone call, you're asking for a phone call, you're following up on things that you heard from the person, uh, and then you're starting it off with the next person. And you really kind of need, you know, you can use a tool as simple as Outlook and, and give yourself reminders and tasks every day, but your job search is your job. And you know, you should try to fill your calendar up with these types of activities and, and no longer wake up in the morning and just kind of go to Indeed and start click, pray, click, pray, click, pray. Um, but, and it varies by person, but, but um, you know, if you put a good five, six hours a day uh, at the job search, 
um, I think a, a person can easily handle 10. And if they're more interested in getting a job quicker, you know, build upon that number. But as long as you're organized and you write down your commitments and schedule your appointments, you, you should be able to handle uh, quite, quite a few more than those. Well, if you only have uh, 30% respond, though, I mean, you, I would think you're quickly back into research mode. So, you you know, you have your 10 and, you know, you're not getting response. So you, yeah, you kind of put them in your follow-up program, as you mentioned, but I would go, I'm assuming you just, you go back to the well and research and find 10 more and you just keep rolling through. And and, that, and that's what I meant. You know, I mean, how many of these things can you handle? Well, you know, and again, let's let's not overemphasize what research means, right? So if you're an accountant, virtually any company needs accountants. Okay, so that's that research. Now the research is who's the accounting manager or controller that I'd like to work for? Uh, and then you look at their profile and pick out a couple nuggets that are the basis for uh, a request for a relationship or a call. Um, uh, so that, that can be relatively quickly, uh, relatively quick. It's much different when you're preparing for an interview, right? Where you want to read the annual report if it's available and learn as much as you can about the company. At this stage, you know, you're not getting ready to propose marriage. You know, you're just getting up the courage to ask them on the first date. Well, we've, um, we've been at this for a while. I, I, I there's a couple other questions I wanted to ask before, we run out of time. Um, would you rather discuss some of your top tips or how to prepare for an interview, or would you rather discuss how to handle the salary question? Uh, the easier one. Well, we could we could we could do either, but uh, let's let's go. The easier one, I think, is salary. Um, in general, the best advice is you don't want to. You certainly don't want to bring up the topic, and if the other person brings it up, you want to. Delay, 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 delay. Why is that? It's because you want the person to be in love with you before that uh, 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 conversation comes up. It's the same thing for a salesperson. Salesperson typically, unless they are selling a commodity product, which you definitely as a job seeker are not, you don't want to give a price until you've established in your customer's mind the value that your product offers to them. How does it make their life easier or happier? Same thing for you as, a, as the product. Uh, what value are you bringing to, to this potential employer? So then if you happen to mention a salary that's higher than they initially were thinking, maybe now they're thinking differently because you've proven to them the value that you have. Um, and that's through the interview process, you know, once that job uh, eventually gets offered to them. But I know that can be difficult because there are recruiters, uh, Tony, who have, when I was looking for a job, who told me, Dave, I can't tell my client that uh, you won't tell me your salary. If, we're, if you don't tell me what, what you made um, then in your last two jobs, then this interview is over. Okay, well, there's ways to deal with that as well. So you can kind of turn it on them. Okay, well... Um, Let's talk about what your target for, for placing this employee is. What's the target salary range? And believe it or not, half the time people will actually tell you, and that stops that conversation. And so, you know, you can then decide, can you work with something like that? You know, you're not agreeing to that salary at this point, but is it worth your time to continue in the process? 
Uh, of course, if you say, you know, if they say we're going to pay up to $80,000. Laws are changing now and it's being, it's more difficult for companies to ask what you used to make. So if someone is that bold and ask you what you used to make, you really can say, you know, I'm really uncomfortable talking about what I used to make. I'd rather talk about, you know, what my value is now. Right. And, right. Yeah. and you know, right. if someone were that, if someone were that aggressive with you, you know, that could be a red flag. And that's probably just the, re the external recruiter, your internal recruiters um, in HR. They're, they're more trained now to be, you know, kind of sensitive around that, around that question. Um, no, you're, you're and, and there's a lot we can say. Yeah. Right. yeah. But, but so, so let's say that, um, um, you know, they ask you what's your, what's your target salary, Tony? Um, you know, as a job seeker, um, I'd still flip that around. Um, but, but eventually you're going to have to say something if they don't offer what they're willing to pay. And, and I'll tell you what I say, Dave, I, I, my, I, I advise people to say, I'm looking for market rate. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really good idea. And you just say, listen, I'm looking for market rate. I've done some research. I have a, a decent idea, but you work in the industry. You work in this space. You guys know what the market rate is. As long as you guys are in and around market rate, I will be totally fine with that. And to your point, that kind of just pushes it off the table. And if they push again and say, you know, well, what are you considering? Then I would say back to them as well, what do you consider market rate? And now you're not talking about you or them. It's almost a topic that's separate from both of you that you can look at and analyze and say, well, what do you guys think market rate is for this? Not what do you want to pay me? That's personal. But what the market rate is positions it as kind of a, a fuzzy idea that's out there that's not personal. And I, I think they can get away with that. I think that's that's great advice. Uh, maybe to go along with that is um, you could make them almost feel a little bit guilty. Um, hey, you work for a great company. I'm sure that you pay a competitive uh, market rate, and I'm going to trust your judgment that um, you know that 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 you're doing so. So it's kind of saying the same thing. But you're right. I mean, there are states now where the, the, that question is illegal, um, and I'm sure over time it's going to just spread. Um, which is a good thing. Yeah, I think it just uh, takes away, you know, some of that awkwardness. Um, and, you know, maybe at another time we can talk more about your strategies for, you know, how to prepare for an interview because you've touched on, you know, looking at the financial statements and pulling information from that. That's a great idea if the company is publicly traded. But getting into interviews is it's just like trying to give somebody dating advice. I mean, there's just so much. Well, there, there is, we, we could cover in detail at another time, but let me just leave you with this. Um, think about an interview the same way a politician thinks about an interview. So when you see Trump or be, before him, Obama or Reagan or anybody interviewed, how often did you see them answering the direct question that was asked? Oh, Lord, they never answer the direct question. That, that's right. And that's not a bad lesson to have. So I, when I've had interviews of, for myself and when I coach people, I tell them, you need to have three or four stories, uh, star stories, situation, task, action, and results, um, uh, about situations that occurred in your life. 
uh, and there are three or four categories that almost all interview questions can broadly be answered by. And so when the question is asked, repeat back to them. Oh, I, I, I hear, okay, I, I, you're, you're asking me about, you know, the time that I was most proud of in, in my career. Let me answer it by telling you about this particular situation. Well, that answer, that story can be used to answer any of 10 or 15 different questions. Um, and I believe that there's only going to be, in most interviews, three substantial questions at most that you're actually going to have to think about. And if you can get good at responding back to them with the words that they asked you and transitioning quickly into an interesting story, um, um, I think you're going to be successful. As a matter of fact, Tony. Yeah, it sounds like you're answering. It sounds it sound like you're answering the question. I would just caution people: if you really just try to avoid answering their question, like politicians, you will really annoy the the uh, the interviewer. So there is a fine balance there. I've had to ask. I mean, I've literally have had to ask people three times the same question because they're not answering it, and that's a little frustrating. So you're right. You. You want to have like preloaded great stories that are focused on your accomplishments that you want to to share with them, and you got to find a way to take that that question and. Right, I, I, I probably I probably overstated, but if you think about it, um, you know there are people that you know say here memorize you know write down and memorize answers to these hundred questions. That's completely a waste of time and you'll sound like a robot and it, it, it's just unnecessary. But if, to your point, if you've got these accomplishments that you can put into story form, you know, you can answer their question with the same story because if you think about how an interview goes, you know, there's three, like I said, three substantive questions at most. And there's the questions about tell me what happened in 2007 when you moved from this company to this company or why did you choose to get uh, a master's degree? So there, you know the answers to those questions. It's just the ones where you've got to make judgments. Um, and let me just, a, a quick uh, aside here. You know, although I'm a consultant and I'm not looking for a job, you know, when recruiters call me um, and it's an interesting job, you know, I listen. Um, and so the other day, um, I was interviewed by a VP of HR for a job that, um, you know, would sound very interesting to me. She, you know, so I asked her, you know, how did the interview go? What do you think? Are we going to have next steps? And she said, well, absolutely. And, and she said, can I make an observation, Dave? <laughs> she said, I said, sure. She said, you know, you didn't really answer most of the questions I asked you, but I found your stories so fascinating and they gave me what I needed about your personality and work ethic that not only did I write them down, but I gave you a star <laughs> for several of those. Um, so you're right. It's a, <laughs> she actually said that, that you didn't actually answer the question. That's right. You know, uh, she said, you know, there's several instances where you didn't actually answer my question, but I didn't really care because it was great listening to the stories. Uh, um, so you're right. But isn't wrong. that the truth? But isn't that what they're really looking for? They are looking for so many other things that are behind the scenes. Yes, they're asking the question because they want to know something, but they probably have three or four other questions that they're hoping to have answered personality style. How well do you communicate? Are you professional? Are you organized? All these little subtle things that you are actually answering by speaking so clearly about 
your background and your accomplishments. Exactly. So I, I coach job seekers. They don't, now every interviewer is different, right? Um, and some are very well prepared. Some didn't even look at your resume until the HR person threw it on their desk five minutes before the interview. Um, and I actually had one person in one interview uh, tell me, oh, no, go ahead and keep talking. I'm, I'm reviewing your resume right now. Um, you know, how, how insulting. But what I tell what I tell job seekers is the interviewer likely doesn't care what the answer is. You know, if it's an in-person interview, they're looking at you. Do you believe what you're saying? Can you look them in the eye? Are you fidgeting? Does your body language match what you're saying? Do, do, do you seem like the type of person that they'd like to work with or that they would feel comfortable endorsing to the hiring manager? If they pass you on, are you going to embarrass them? Um, yeah. Does your, is your resume true? Do you feel comfortable defending the things that you wrote on your resume? Which is another reason why if you have any writing ability at all, you ought to prepare your own resume rather than pay somebody to do it for you. Because then you're going to feel a little uncomfortable when it comes time to defend it. But you're right. Unless it's a technical job, you know, you're going to be a scrum master in an IT department or you're going to be a technical accountant. Um, you know, the, the questions are meant to do the types of things that you just pointed out to me. Yeah. You know that, but that's that's great advice um, that you've given, and it's a great it's listen it's a great approach, and I don't think enough people do this, and I think it's it's wonderful that you have discovered this, and you're literally helping people. I mean, you as you say, you do it in your spare time. Um, when you and I first talked, I it kind of took me a minute to get my head around what you were saying that you know you had so much information that you just wanted to share, you just wanted to get it out there because. You're constantly helping people, and this is um, kind of you kind of putting your thoughts down, your ideas down, um, so you can help e even more people. So I think that's that's certainly great. And as far as your consulting business and your consulting practice, I think what I'll do is I'll just link, uh, you know, your your LinkedIn profile into our Facebook group, so everybody who's a member of our Facebook group can go and see who you are and kind of take a look at the the other professional side of what you do. And I think it'd be a great way just to finish here is just kind of let us know since you are consulting, what types of consulting uh, opportunities do you look for? So anyone who's listening to this, that just picked up some great ideas from you, this could be a way they could pay it forward to you. Oh, well, thank you for that opportunity. So my company is called the operations group and we help uh, manufacturing and industrial services companies improve profitability. The way that we do that is by a focus on the four most important key performance indicators or metrics for an operations uh, group, and those being productivity, safety, quality, and on-time delivery of products or services. Um, I've developed skills both through corporate roles, uh, previous consulting, uh, getting my master black belt certification from GE and a lot of experience in lean manufacturing. And I say we because I can't do everything myself. I'm not uh, an expert in everything. And so um, as, as I explore opportunities to help companies, uh, quite often um, there, there's, there's a skill set needed above and beyond my own. And so I work with a series of other consultants and bring them in as necessary to fulfill the client's needs. So if, if someone is 
familiar with a, a manufacturing or or uh, maybe an industrial corporation or, or company, what are the signs that maybe there's an opportunity to to mention you as an outside consultant? Because you know you know you're trained to know the kind of questions to ask because you can see a potential issue. Uh, I may not know that a company is not being profitable. So are there some signs, some little telltale signs that someone just might be able to pick up on that could be a potential lead for you? Sure. Uh, so you hear an executive, a leader, or even an individual contributor say, boy, it's really getting frustrating. We used to be able to ship 90% of our orders on time, and since COVID struck, it's 60%. Um, or... Uh, we're facing a layoff because uh, the ownership team doesn't see enough profit coming into the business. Um, let's see. Uh, boy, uh, I'm really worried. In the last month, we've had uh, three employees get injured on the job. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, so it's those types of things. Uh, and by the, way, by the way, those are my, you know, when I go out proactively and look for clients, that's the type you write manufacturers and, and people that dispatch field service people for other companies, but coming the other direction, when people find me, um, it, 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 it's across industries. So for example, right now I'm working with a pharmaceutical distributor, uh, a consumer packaged goods, a company that makes skincare products, um, 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 and negotiations with uh, a distributor of uh, medical supplies and, and devices, a company that makes building products, a windows and doors company. And so fortunately, over my corporate and consulting experience, you know, I've been exposed to a wide range of um, functions and industries. And if, if a company does work, it's got processes. And if there are processes, they can always be improved. Um, I, I started up a, a continuous improvement program within the accounting and finance department of an insurance company, uh, much different than manufacturing, but it's still people doing their jobs. A job has a process, and um, it, there's always opportunities to improve those. Well, you're industry agnostic, so for those of you out there who think there may be a problem within even your current company or a friend's company, you know, Dave is a, is a great option to at least um, listen to, you know, what some potential solutions are. Well, thank you, Dave. It's been extremely informative, and it's just great to know that there, you've, you've got example after example of people that you help. When we talked offline, there were many people that you mentioned. So this is not something that he's just um, kind of made up. This is uh, a, a proven technique kind of through the fire that's come out from his own life and from the other people that he's worked with. So incorporate some of these ideas in what you're currently doing. And, you know, I'd love to hear your comments, you know, back on the, on the, on the Facebook group. And if you have additional questions for Dave, leave them in the Facebook group and we'll see if we can get those answered for you. Thanks Dave. And we will talk to you soon. It's been great talking with you, Tony. And thanks again for the opportunity. Don't forget Head over to LinkedIn and follow me and then go to Facebook and join the exclusive Career Daily Facebook group. That's where I'll have links to the show notes and all the people and companies that we've discussed today.